You're listening to the St John's Diamond Creek Podcast. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Today's reading is from Job chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job did. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Narmathite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They they comforted him and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima. The second... Keziah, and the third, Keren Hapush. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived a 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
I remember being on a hike when I was in high school. It was a hot summer's day. I was carrying a big, heavy backpack and we were trudging up a hill that seemed to go on forever. But there was hope because I could see just up ahead that the steep incline flattened out. If I could just keep going for a bit longer, then we would have reached the summit. So I gritted my teeth and kept going. But when we reached that point up ahead, I realised that I was wrong. It wasn't the top at all. It was a false peak and there was lots and lots of climbing still to go. Well, it can feel like that in the midst of suffering. Just putting one foot in front of the other with gritted teeth, trying to survive the next week, the next day, the next hour. And just when we think we're through the worst of it, a new wave of suffering hits. The hope for good news is bad news. Or what we hoped would be over keeps on dragging out. How long, O oh Lord? When will there be an end to suffering? Well, today we've reached the end of the book of Job, the end of Job's story, and the end of his suffering. What has this got to teach us as we look forward to the end of our suffering and indeed the end of all suffering? In chapters 38 to 41, we have seen God speaking to Job. He's bombarded Job with a series of questions. And in chapter 42, Job now answers God. This is verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job asserts that God is sovereign. He's in control of everything and he will bring his purposes to their right conclusion. I said earlier in our series that faced with the problem of suffering, if God is all powerful and if God is all loving, then why does suffering exist? Some people try and solve the problem of suffering by asserting that God is not fully in control. Yes, God's knowledge and power are far superior to ours, but there are still limits to what he can do. He's like a highly skilled chess player whose many moves ahead of other players, but is still not entirely in control. So, they say, sometimes terrible suffering happens and there's nothing that God can do to stop it. But Job will have none of this. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Suffering doesn't undermine his belief in an all-powerful and sovereign God, which is just as well. Because if God can't control things now, what hope is there that he will resolve any of it in the end? Would, what hope would there be that there will be an end to suffering? But God can do all things and his purposes will be accomplished, says Job. In verse 3, Job quotes what God has said to him back in chapter 38, verse 2, and gives a reply. You asked... Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? 
Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job now realises that God's plans are bigger and more complex than he imagined. The world is a complex mechanism with many moving and interrelated parts. We don't fully understand the physical universe, let alone the moral universe with its complex competing ethical demands and with the need to couple justice with mercy and grace. Job realises that he needs to leave it to God. And just because it doesn't fully make sense to him, well, that doesn't mean that God isn't doing right and acting justly. God's plans are bigger and more wonderful than he can fully comprehend. Job quotes God again in verse 4. You said... Listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Through Job's experience, through this encounter with God, Job has grown in his understanding. He'd heard about God, but now he's seen him. He has a new and deeper realisation of God and a renewed relationship with God. Remember that one part that Job's friends got right? It was that they turned up and they were present with Job. There's great power in presence. And that's true of God's presence too. In Psalm 23, David says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Job had wanted God to answer him. He'd been frustrated that God had been silent and not answering him. Maybe you felt the same in the midst of great pain. Where is God? Why isn't he answering me? But God does turn up for Job. He does answer him. And the presence of God, meeting with him and hearing from him, is enough. It doesn't answer all of Job's questions, but it reminds him that God is personal and present. That God is loving and is with him. Now, you and I know much more about this than Job ever did. We know that God is not remote and removed from suffering. We know that God has shown up. God has fully embraced our human experience in the person of Jesus. And in human flesh, he has suffered. This is the absolutely stunning heart of the Christian response to suffering in the world. Whatever suffering and pain we're experiencing, we know that God understands it. He understands it because he has experienced it. The universal symbol of the Christian faith is a cross, a symbol of torture, shame, agony, and abandonment. 
God has suffered all of these things in Jesus. He gets it. Like Job, we can say, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. We've seen you hanging bloodied and broken on a cross. We've seen you suffer for the world you love. Again, the problem of suffering is, if God is all-powerful and if God is all-loving, why does suffering exist? And in the midst of our suffering, we might ask, maybe God isn't loving at all given the amount of suffering in the world. Maybe God doesn't love me if I'm suffering. But the cross leaves us in no doubt of the love of God. The cross tells us that God's heart is utterly for you. He loves you so deeply that he hung bloodied, beaten and abandoned on a cross for you. God understands suffering, not in theory or hypothetically. He understands it experientially. Suffering has torn at the very heart of God as the Father and the Son experience separation and death at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nothing less than an all-loving God would experience that depth of searing loss and pain. This is the heart of the Christian response to suffering, that God himself suffers and that in his suffering, he redeems our suffering. In his suffering, he couples justice with mercy and grace. He bears the sin of the world in his own person, dealing with our sin, which causes suffering in others and offering grace, mercy and forgiveness as he bears that terrible cost. Job has wanted God to turn up and he does. But could Job have comprehended what we now know, that God has shown up in human flesh, that God was saturated with sorrow and swamped by suffering, that God's love compelled him to embrace suffering for us. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And like Job, I'm speaking now about things that I don't fully understand, things which are too wonderful for me to know. And yet these things are the heart of God's response to our suffering. Job 42 verse 6 is a difficult verse. How we interpret it can drastically change our understanding of the book of Job. Uh, Verse 6 in our Bible reads, Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Which could imply that Job finally does what his friends have been telling him to do all along. He recognises that he has sinned and needs to repent. But the whole book has been clear that Job hasn't sinned. And God says twice in the following verses that Job has spoken rightly of him. Now, another way of translating this same verse, which is just as valid in the Hebrew it was originally written in, 
is, therefore, I reject and turn away from dust and ashes. The word myself isn't actually there in the Hebrew. It's just been added in in our translation. So Job is saying that he's now satisfied with God's answer. So he wants to put aside the charges that he wanted to bring against God. And he turns away from this period of mourning and lament. He's been sitting in the dust and ashes, but now he turns away from that because God has answered him. And he's confident that God does have control of the situation. Now, I believe that that fits better with the context. In what follows, there's no declaration of forgiveness by God, which you'd expect if Job had just repented of his sin. Instead, it's Job who's called on to mediate for his friends. And when God speaks again, he endorses Job, saying that he's spoken rightly of him, in contrast to his friends. In fact, there's a deep irony in what happens here with Job's friends because chapter after chapter, they've been berating Job and they've told him he's a sinner. They've told him that he's wrong and that he's spoken wrongly of God. He needs to repent and he needs to be restored by God. But in the end, God tells them, you are the ones who've spoken wrongly, not Job, and you are the ones who need to be restored. So this righteous man, Job, he's going to offer sacrifices on your behalf. Verse 8. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. Folly is an old-fashioned word. It's a polite way of saying you've been stupid. Here again is the grace, mercy and forgiveness of God. The friends have had this neat little theological system. If you suffer, then you must have sinned and you are being punished. But thankfully, God doesn't act like that. And he doesn't act like that with them. They've been stupid, insensitive and wrong, but he doesn't deal with them according to their stupidity. Instead, he forgives them. And God doesn't deal with us according to our stupidity either. He's patient with us. He doesn't just strike us down when we cause harm or are insensitive or even plain cruel. He offers us forgiveness too. He sacrificed himself on the cross to deal with our stupidity and our sin. Well, lastly, in verses 10 to 17, God restores the fortunes of Job. In fact, it gives him twice as much as he had before. 14,000 sheep instead of 7,000, 6,000 camels instead of 3,000, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys compared to the 500 of each that he had before. God is no one's debtor. Job suffers terrible things, but in the end, God restores him and provides him with even more than he'd lost. Some people dislike this ending to the book of Job. It feels too much like a a Disney fairy tale with its happily ever after. 
real life is not so neat and tidy as all that. Well, that's true. Job's restoration comes to him in the present life, and that may not always be the case. People are tortured and killed for their faith and don't receive any reward or restoration in this life. And we might experience terrible suffering and not ever see the point of it in the here and now. But we're looking for, but if we're looking for complete restoration in our earthly lives, then I think we're looking at a false peak, like me on that bushwalk, thinking that the end is just ahead when it isn't. That's short-sighted. We need a bigger picture and a broader vision of God's ways and plans. This world is not all that there is, and the fullness of restoration is still to come. In Luke 18, the disciple Peter says to Jesus, we have left all we had to follow you. Peter's highlighting the cost of following Jesus, the financial cost, the insecurity of being on the road, the risk from the authorities who don't like Jesus, the time away from family, and even perhaps being disowned by their families. In short, Peter says, we have suffered in order to follow you, Jesus. What does Jesus say in reply? Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. In the end, no one will be able to say, you shortchanged me, God. You ripped me off. You still owe me. God will act with justice and he will settle all his accounts and he'll do it abundantly and extravagantly. If not in this life, then in the age to come. The end of suffering will only come at the end. From the book of Job, we need to project forward to Jesus. We've seen that on the cross, Jesus suffers to deal with injustice, sin and evil. But Jesus also rises from the dead. Sin and death and evil can't constrain him or defeat him. He is all-powerful. And in the resurrection of Jesus, the new creation breaks into the present and the end of suffering is announced. Jesus shows us in his person what the future contains, that there is hope even beyond death, that God will bring his new creation into being, and it is then that all will be restored. When all the sad things will come untrue and when all of the accounts are settled. There's an interesting feature in Job's restoration that we might easily pass over. In verse 10, we're told, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. We saw that this was true with his animals. He had twice as many as before, but it isn't true of his family. He gets seven more sons 
and three daughters like he had before. But when we see Job's story in the light of the whole Bible, in the light of the resurrection of Jesus, we see that Job's family is indeed double what it was. Because in the resurrection power of Jesus, Job's children who died in that terrible tragedy at the start are not lost forever. In the resurrection at the end of time, they will be reunited with Job and the rest of his family. God doesn't rip people off. He can do all things. His purposes will not be thwarted. And he is abundant in his generosity. We can only understand God's response to suffering by immersing ourselves in God's story. God's story for the world, which we are a part of. We're still in the midst of this story. And so all the problems of pain and suffering are not yet fully resolved. We stand on this side of the cross and so we can look back and see that in Jesus, God has experienced the depth of suffering in his person. And we stand on this side of the resurrection of Jesus. We can look back and say with confidence, Jesus is risen. The new creation has broken into this world in the person of Jesus. God has given us his Holy Spirit. We have the very presence of God living in us to strengthen, sustain and help us in the midst of our present struggles. But we are still trudging up the hill with heavy packs on our backs, with blistered feet and with parched throats. But we can look forward in hope that there is an end in sight, that there is an end to suffering. God promises us that Jesus will return. Then and only then will God's justice be fully accomplished. Then and only then will accounts be settled and the abundance of God's grace revealed. Then and only then will we see and experience the end of suffering. We have a beautiful image of this end in Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for St. John's Diamond Creek. 